Atlantic Avenue, and you can email me at dprfortune at hotmail.com. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Uh, the previous program was Let's Talk with uh, John Kane and Shawnee Rice, and that's heard Thursday starting at 3 p.m. And if you enjoy a lively and very intelligent discussion about things as such that comes from a native perspective, um, you should support this radio station because this is what WBAI, this is what makes WBAI distinct and unique up, um, comparing to our local uh, 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 radio stations and, and, and for that matter, media in general. I mean, we're allowed to have someone like John and Shawnee on the air. So if you enjoy and appreciate the dialogue that they just had, please, by all means, you can still call the pledge line right now. Become a buddy. Simple as that. Just become a buddy. 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org online. It is now one minute past 5 p.m. Stay tuned for Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons coming up. Driving Forces, where we focus on the big issues in city, state, and national politics that matter to you. You were just listening to uh, Let's Talk with John Kane. I'm Jeff Simmons, your host of Driving Forces, and I'm glad you're staying with us on WBAI. There's a lot that's been going on in the news today and well this week. I just want to give you a few of the bullet points on the latest developments. House Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi. She's asked the chairman to proceed with articles of impeachment, and this, uh, according to the reports, virtually guarantees that uh, our president will only be the third president in American history to be impeached by the House. And she said earlier today in a uh, morning news conference, sadly, but with confidence and humility, today I am asking our chairman to proceed with articles of impeachment. Formal articles of impeachment will soon then be drawn up by the House Judiciary Committee, and that could lead then to a floor vote to impeach Donald Trump. Since the Democrats hold a majority of the House, then impeachment is considered now a near certainty. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, on another matter, has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to block a subpoena for his financial documents, still trying to hold back on his tax records from being made public. And finally, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi also during her uh, news conference today blasted a reporter for asking if her impeachment call was about hating Donald Trump. She insisted, no, it's about the law. So a central figure in all of these actions has been our former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, whose role in the campaign against the, uh, the Ukrainian government has been core to the impeachment inquiry. And last week, Giuliani had tweeted, I will not participate in an illegitimate, unconstitutional and baseless impeachment inquiry. It's been reported this week also that he's been in Europe. He's overseas trying to shift the focus onto Trump's opponents, and he's apparently using the trip to help prepare more episodes of a documentary series for a conservative TV outlet uh, that promotes his pro-Trump anti-impeachment narrative. So that's why today on this special issue of Driving Forces, uh, we're going to focus on Rudy Giuliani, and I've got three wonderful guests lined up. Evan Mandry of John Jay College of Criminal Justice, who's joining me in studio this afternoon and is going to take your phone calls. Former Manhattan Borough President Ruth Messenger, who ran against Giuliani for mayor. And then Andrew Kurtzman, who wrote the book on Giuliani and has just been signed on by Simon & Schuster to write another one. I want to again thank you for tuning in to WBAI today. We're incredibly happy to be back. And also, you can't see this because we're radio. I'll tweet it. But we are in our new studio here 
we're having a small party coming up and I'm going to try to make this because this is a very celebratory event. It does not mean that we have raised all the money we need. So if you are listening, every dollar counts. And I really would like to encourage you to please contribute five, ten, twenty dollars anything you can contribute. Of course, the numbers are not up on the wall in this new studio, so I'm going to rely on Reggie to repeat the number for me because I know it's 516-516, right? You're right so far. 620? That is correct. 3602? Wow. Impressive. Okay, I got it right. Good. 516-620-3602 is our pledge line. I'm going to make sure I tack it up on the wall if I'm allowed to do that. But it would be wonderful if you could show your support during the show. I'd really like to raise, say, $1,000. I know from donations coming in, we're getting to that point where, you know, hopefully during the show, if we could raise $1,000 during the show, it will help us because now we're in this new studio. But as you've probably heard, if you're a dedicated WBAI listener, we hit that bump for the month that we were, our local programming was off. And that was right at the beginning of our fundraising season. So for all of us here, particularly those who give our blood, sweat and tears to this station and who are volunteers here who want to see this station succeed for another 60 years, please take a moment and give us uh, and pledge to support WBAI. So I mentioned that Rudy Giuliani is overseas, but that gives us an opportunity now to talk about him here today. He has led many lives, gained enormous fame at every turn. He has been considered combative, controversial, and also usually usually effective as U.S. attorney and, in many quarters, effective as New York City mayor. He's been praised as an international hero for his leadership after the September 11th attacks. He's also been a failed presidential candidate, a conservative commentator, and a confidant to our sitting president and now a potential criminal defendant. Here to talk about that in studio is someone who did extensive research on Rudy Giuliani, uh, Evan Mandery. He served as research director on Ruth Messenger's campaign for mayor in 1997, and he wrote a book called The Campaign, which is a close-up look at the, and I'm going to quote from what I had read online, the paranoid, frenzied, oppressive, and exhilarating world of modern political campaigns. And the book provides a day-to-day account of the 1997 uh, New York City mayoral race. Welcome to Driving Forces. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's fun to be here. So talk a little, by the way, before we get into Rudy Giuliani, talk a little about what you do now. I'm a professor at uh, a CUNY college, John Jay College of Criminal Justice. My uh, a little bit of a polyglot. My principal research area is the death penalty, um, and I've written uh, a couple of books uh, on the issue. Uh, I also publish a lot on issues of educational access, and I also write novels, and uh, I did a TV show that won an Emmy Award in the summer, believe it or not. Congratulations. Thank you. So you did this research on Giuliani. Talk a little about that role and what type of, you know, what did you uncover at the time? Right. Uh, I mean, a lot of what we uncovered is pretty much well, no- pretty well known at this point. Um, I mean, what's interesting about the role, it's a very lawyerly role. Um, there's a lot of, um, I mean, you're digging through uh, newspapers and financial records, but it has a very adversarial orientation. It's really oriented to what you think is, is usable. I don't, I don't know that I have any uh, bombshell to disclose that all of your listeners don't already know about, but some of the stuff that we uncovered at the time wasn't, uh, you know, uh, has only been come out since. And we're going to get to our first guest, who I know you know well, in just a few moments. But I do I like, wanna, I like both of your guests but, a great deal. I, thank you. <laughs> but I do want to bring up one piece first, and then we'll uh, bring up uh, bring in Ruth Messenger in just a few moments. But you recently had a piece in the Daily News about Rudy Giuliani. Can you uh, elaborate on uh, on this piece and kind of the the tone of it, the theme of this piece? Right. I I, I, I published an op-ed in, in the news, which to me was very directly a response to an op-ed that appeared in the Times. And uh, kind of by Times op-ed page rules, they wouldn't publish a competing op-ed on the same subject. You'd have to rebut in a letter to the editor. So I, I was happy to get the opportunity to do it and uh, to write it in the news. Um, but it was by a former Giuliani staffer who basically said no one ever could have seen this coming. And mm, that narrative struck me as uh, a excessively self-serving. And I I thought it was important to rebut because I I do think there's kind of looking down the road, uh, a reckoning that people uh, that will ultimately happen where people who've been complicitous in uh, Trump's behavior will be forced to account for it. And 
Um, I don't think Rudy did anything at the time, which is a, uh, of the same magnitude as what uh, the president has done. But I don't think it's fair to say that they utterly were blindsided by this. So we've got uh, Ruth Messenger on the phone right now. And Evan, you are welcome because I know you, uh, you work with Ruth. Uh, if you would like to interject at, at any point, uh, we would, I'm so excited to be able to have Ruth Messenger uh, on the line. She has a distinguished career in the public eye, a teacher, educational administrator, social worker early in her career. She served on the New York City Council in the 80s, became Manhattan Borough President in 1990. In 1997, she ran for mayor, seeking to become the first female mayor in the 330 then 330 year history of the office and while she defeated al sharpton for the democratic nomination she then went on and lost to rudy giuliani in the general and since then she became the president of the american jewish world service the first and only jewish organization dedicated solely to ending poverty and promoting human rights in the developing world uh, ruth welcome to driving forces thank you thank you jeff hello evan hi hi ruth so when you look at the TV now, or, you know, or you read the newspapers and you see, you know, and read about what Rudy Giuliani, you know, is uh, alleged to have done, you know, what does it bring to mind about the character of this man? Um, well, it's it's a bit complicated, but um, there's a whole piece of Rudy that is. Um, really pretty consistent over a long period of time. He has, uh, his major client has always been himself. Um, he's interested in letting us all know what things he's done. Um, and he's done a whole lot of that in a kind of um, thuggish fashion. Which doesn't describe everything about him, of course. Doesn't describe everything he did as mayor. But it's really quite dramatic to see him reverting to this role of like I'm the cowboy from the Wild West um, I can run rings around the State Department I can do the president's work try not to attach an adjective to that um, on my own terms in my own way um, and um, uh, you know it's me and I'll be successful now right now a great deal of it is I have to imagine that he's a little bit anxious about the extent of the exposure. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, while a piece of this, you know, has different characteristics, some of it is always sort of, um, it seems consistent to me with uh, Rudy first, uh, Rudy promoting Rudy, Rudy knows um, how to get what he wants, which doesn't always work, but is a pretty consistent characteristic. And when you talk about those characteristics and think about the personality traits of our president, do you think that those are the similarities that have uh, that have you know made them bond? Um, well, I think certainly some of them are. And you know what's most interesting about that, from my point of view, I don't know if you commented on this either of you at all, but they basically use the strategy that was the Roy Cohn strategy. And in different ways, he apparently consulted with each of them. And it's kind of like, name, a, name an enemy, um, just keep harping your story, whether it's whether everyone would see it as true or not, just keep repeating it and repeating it and repeating it, and feel quite comfortable with bullying other people because they will eventually cave. Uh, those I... things are consistent to both of them, and they are, we know, they were essentially Roy Cohn's mo that he that he advised his clients on yeah i mean i i, I second that jeff i mean it's that's the common denominator in the story and i mean i think if you have any kind of uh fidelity to the truth um, one of the things that's most maddening like you know can come up with innumerable examples when but when trump co-opted fake news right purposefully constructed news for editorial opinion with which he disagreed and this this habit of bludgeoning people with the very accusation that you're guilty of. I mean, they, they so rhetorically, there's so much rhetorical similarity and, and it yeah. just comes back to Cone. And uh, Ruth, I know during the campaign, there were a lot of accusations that he was considered incredibly overzealous and frankly, mean spirited, you know, is, you know, looking back, why do you think, you know, if you feel this way, that Many New Yorkers didn't seem to care that much at the time, but now they're possibly they're seeing him through a different light. 
Oh, well, I mean, I think there, there were, look, there are different points and arcs in the broader political scene and in the particular candidate moments. When I ran against Rudy, um, although I was pretty proud of my 20 years in government and the extent to which I'd stood for some issues and operated with um, integrity, um, he was the incumbent mayor. And there's a huge amount of power that goes with that, respect that goes with that, and in Rudy's case, he added to it by bullying. I mean, one of the things that's consistent, uh, comparative between the two of them, is unlike most other elected officials, they both have operated their press conferences as a privilege. Like, you can only be here if I like your reporting. And there were times when Rudy threw, threw papers out of the City Hall press conferences. Anyway, that kind of intimidation... I certainly don't want to be heard as saying, like, that's the only reason that he was able to move forward. But it was an element that was unpleasant and that sort of drove some people kind of out of the scene. Like, who wants to deal with this guy who's going to um, chastise you in public and bully you? And we certainly see that also with Trump. I think I, I want to repeat the word that you were kind enough to use. There were moments during this campaign when Rudy was totally unnecessarily mean and vindictive. Um, and at least one of them, this issue of what is the what is and isn't fake news was alive and well. And Evan remembers it. We may not remember it exactly the same. But we had positive, factual evidence that there were schools that were so crowded that children were being taken for side classes in bathrooms. And we couldn't fund it or get a picture of it because it's against the law use cameras in schools illegally. So we could simply rely on the say-so of the teachers who told us about this. And the Giuliani campaign, not just Giuliani, but the campaign itself and people that they browbeat into saying there was no truth to this. And eventually the, that fake, their version of fake news um, ended up carrying the day. People really believed, I think, um, in, the, in the constituent universe that we were exaggerating for dramatic effects. And I promise you, we were not exaggerating. It was true what we said. I just think of the tone of campaigns. And Ruth, I had worked, as uh, if you recall, uh, for Bill Thompson for eight years. And we also then wound up running against the incumbent when uh, term limits were changed. And we ran against Mike Bloomberg. And, it, you know, it is difficult going up against an incumbent. But the tone of that campaign, I don't recall the Bloomberg folks being mean-spirited or overzealous. I mean, it, you know, it was a different tone. When it comes to Rudy Giuliani, what do you think was the through line for his years as mayor? Rudy. Of Rudy Giuliani, was, yeah. I think that was the through line. The through line was me. I'm, I'm a, I was a great prosecutor. I'm a greater mayor. I will go on to greater and greater things. I think this is a person who thought more highly of himself. I mean, we know some of the stories he... he um, tangled with his police commissioner because his police commissioner claimed legitimate credit for some of the crime reduction that he had been asked to pursue. I mean, it was, yes, it was, it was significantly Rudy's choice to focus on continuing to bring down the crime rate. Um, yes, he had some ideas. Yes, his police commissioner had some ideas. But like most elected officials would know enough to share the credit with the people who did some of the work. And in his case, he couldn't stand that they took credit for it. He couldn't stand that Ratton's PR person said, look, Bill Ratton's done a great job. He basically fired them. Um, you know, divorced his wife at a press conference. Told people I was lying about a couple of issues. My favorite story, which is quite irrelevant to the actual you know, structure of the campaign, but he told the press on Columbus Day at the parade that he was astounded that I hadn't been at Mass in the cathedral that morning. And the press, with all due respect to the members of the media, came running to find me in the parade to say, the mayor says that it was disrespectful of you not to be at the Cardinal's Mass this morning. What do you have to say? And I said, what I have to say is I'm not a Catholic. I mean, it's a trivial example, but it was, like, bizarre. He, he seized on this. He was, like, going to attack me for not having gone to Mass. And people were running to sort of do his bidding. Yes, why weren't you at Mass? So it just... It was a strange, he was a strange person to deal with. He threatened people who chose to support us. And I want to say all of these things, I'm absolutely clear. I was running against a reasonably popular incumbent who had done something to bring down the crime rate and um, 
that that was very important to people and improved the sense their sense of life in New York City. And so I failed to get enough people to listen to our, I think, pretty powerful analysis of the state of education and public higher ed- public education and public higher education. But I mean, that's why we lost. We didn't do a good enough job. But we did run into this buzzsaw of a man who sort of stopped at nothing to move his agenda, and that is certainly what we see now. And I, I, I think also like kind of remember what the what the issue that we're discussing is. It doesn't matter so much what the operative dynamics of the campaign were in 1997. This proposition that his behavior today. Uh, his, his 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 disdain for the law is uh, was utterly unforeseeable. I'll tell you what would be un- utterly unforeseeable if Ruth Messenger had said uh, that its uh, story is fake news, or she had refused to comply uh, with an entire set of subpoenas from a an independent branch of government, or she became president and said that Article Two of the Constitution gave her permission to do anything. Then I would say, oh, that's utterly unrecognizable from the person uh, that I've known. I mean, she lived a life of principle. And I mean, I, I don't think he everything he did was unprincipled, but there were many things that he did were on that were unprincipled. And some right. of them, like what Ruth's saying is it, it's almost like this recklessness with the truth. Like what what would be, at least I mean, at least in that story that you told, Ruth, at least you weren't in mass. But I, I can come up with many <laughs> examples of things that he said that he knew were false. And he's right. fabricating because it's like the smartest guy in the room. He knows he can get away with it. It's very a, a lawyerly orientation to the truth, a Roy Cohn orientation to the truth. And anybody who was paying any attention to him sees that that was almost habitual, like he almost couldn't resist doing it. There's another little story, although I like I like your spin that it's somehow it's the lies that are the most interesting. But, you know, right after Trump was elected, Rudy was asked by the press, because he had sort of supported him and was kind of going to pay homage to his winning the election, he was asked by a member of the press, this was a public story, well, are you interested in being director of Homeland Security? Which was a logical question, given the 9-11 story and given his prosecutorial background. And he said, no, I only want to be Secretary of State. And I just want to point out to you that what he's doing now is imagining that he's Secretary of State and making his own rules um, on behalf of the president, apparently, but also on behalf of himself, as if years of State Department protocols, diplomacy expectations just don't exist because Rudy is Rudy and he can do what he wants. So hiring thugs, running, making making side agreements, um, that some of that is just quite consistent with who he's always been. And we've got just a few minutes left. And, you know, I was a reporter at New York One at the time that September 11th happened. Rudy... You know, was on the international stage. He was seen as, you know, uh, America's mayor, as the world's mayor. Do you think he squandered a lot of that goodwill, you know, uh, uh, in recent years as a result of his activities? Well, I do, yes. I mean, I think, again, even when, even when he has that deserved reputation um, um, and certainly did a better job of responding to 9-11 than either the governor or the then, the then governor or the then president, he sort of wrote it in a way that, that kind of got out of hand. That was who he was, as if he and his then girlfriend, now his third wife, about to be not his third wife, you know, their their story was their days down at uh, Lower Manhattan. You know, there were thousands of New Yorkers who went to work in Lower Manhattan, some of whom are currently dying for the work they've done there, literally. Um, but when you hear Rudy tell it, it was only him. So it was not, it was a deserved reputation in that he dealt it well. It was an undeserved reputation in that it wasn't only him. And he was never able, has never been able to give credit to anyone else. And one of the things that's actually interesting to me now, and again, guys, you may think of it as a side point, but his job right now is personal counsel to the president. And I'm not a lawyer. But I know that the job of a personal counsel is to advise his or her client on risks and routes to take to avoid those risks. And there's nothing in his behavior that suggests that that's what he's doing. Yeah, he's not acting like any – I am a lawyer. and He's not rac- acting like any lawyer that I recognize. He's not acting like a lawyer, but he's not, and he's not acting like a personal counsel. And he's acting like, trust me, ignore your secretary of state, ignore your diplomatic corps. I will go out and hire some thugs and we'll get it done. 
May I just say, in terms of his legacy, uh, I just think in sort of more empirical-based answer is, you know, he would have – he had some bipartisan support, not a ton, but there were some Democrats that would have expressed a favorable opinion of him. And he has – his legacy of support now will be exclusively Republicans in the same way of Donald Trump's. Well, he may end up in serious trouble. Oh, well, well, his legacy may be ending up in prison. Yeah, that's that's true too. But – you know, many Republicans won't accept the legitimacy of that prosecution when it happens because of the kind of transformation of perceptions of legitimate institutions. So, Ruth, we've got just about a minute or two left, and I do want to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners who might not have heard from you in a while what you're up to these days. So I continue to um, work on social justice issues. I do it in a variety of places and ways. I'm um, on the staff of the Center for Social Responsibility at the Jewish Community Center at 76th in Amsterdam. We're doing programming um, in environment, voting rights, race and racism. Um, I teach some courses there. Happy to hear from people. And I'm happy to say that I still get asked to be a commentator on New York One. And I get to discuss Rudy and Donald and a variety of other players. And according to our program director, there is an open invitation for you to come here to WBAI if you'd like to be able to uh, sit in on more shows. So keep that in mind as well. Okay. Uh, will do. How can people learn more about you? Uh, website, social media? Um, I don't. Um, I, I do those things, but really on behalf of the jobs that I already have because I don't have space for a lot more. So I'm not going to start giving people you know, contact information because I will drown. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me here in studio today. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye, Ruth. So any, uh, Evan, any post uh, conversation thoughts on what was uh, discussed with Ruth? Um, well, no, I mean, I, I, you know, we're, we're like-minded kind of in our view of the universe. So, I mean, I, I you know, the story of my book was really, this supremely intelligent and principled person, like a social justice crusader. And, you know, I think the intersection with what was then modern campaigning, um, and I thought it was very uncomfortable and I thought didn't serve her well in a lot of ways. So, you know, I, I don't know. There's certainly nothing she said that I disagree with. So I'm not surprised by that, though. You are listening to Driving Forces with me, your host, Jeff Simmons on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, and also streaming live at WBAI.org. We're going to take your calls in the next half hour after our next guest. Uh, and so just write down this number for now, but don't call 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Uh, I'm in, joined in studio with Evan Mandry of John Jay College of Criminal Justice, who wrote the book The Campaign, uh, and uh, a number of other books as well, fiction and nonfiction. Uh, we're talking about Rudy Giuliani on this show. So I'm curious what you think Rudy Giuliani's fatal flaw is. Uh, it's it's hubris. Um, so, I mean, I think um, I think it's a sense that he's the, it's the smartest guy in the room, that he can outsmart everybody else. That That's the that's the, what's always struck me about the lying is that. Uh, it was gratuitous, but I could see that he was calculating and he was like, oh, this isn't disprovable. And um, I think this sense that I can get away with it, okay, I think he may have done one or a set of things that he's not going to be able to get away with. And in your, in your daily news piece, uh, you know, it's a very enjoyable piece. Uh, you wrote about how you used to laugh about how Giuliani would uh, tweak the truth during the campaign. And that's you know, one of the common themes of the last conversation we had as well. Can you talk a little about that? Well, I mean, you know, in retrospect, it seems so quaint as so many political conflicts do. I mean, oh, you know, for the this was uh, somebody exaggerating to win the mayoralty of New York City. And now you feel sort of more existentially like the nature of truth is at stake in some of so many of these um, you know, public dialogues. So the undermining of the press and the undermining of science, um, it seems much more uh, ominous in retrospect. 
Uh, as the impeachment proceedings, we're going to get to our next guest in a moment, but as the impeachment proceedings have progressed and you've been watching this, you know, what's been your assessment of his role? Do you think there is a lot, you know, I think most of it has come out already, or do you think we're going to, you know, he has uh, bent the truth a lot and more will be coming out? Uh, with respect to Rudy, uh, I want to second something Ruth said, which is he hasn't functioned in a lawyerly capacity. Um, certainly if he were looking out for uh Donald Trump's uh, political or legal interests, he would not be in Ukraine this week trying to, uh, you know, fund a clearly false conservative documentary. Um, You know, if I were a betting person, uh, I think he's going to get indicted. I mean, uh, the Southern District has said that a superseding indictment is coming. Um, They've basically not excluded him as a person of interest, which kind of makes him a person of interest. And we know there's a grand jury that's issued subpoenas to his consultancy. And there's a pretty clear law that he appears to have violated um, that he hasn't registered as someone working on behalf of a foreign government. So he's he's definitely at high risk. So we're going to get to our next guest now. I don't know what else I could say about my next guest. He's a friend. He's an author, a PR guru, television personality, and my former colleague at New York One, one of the original hosts of the acclaimed Inside City Hall show, Andrew Kurtzman, now runs a public affairs consulting firm, served as a political journalist for much of his career, covered more than a dozen national political campaigns for print and television, won multiple Emmy Awards. Andrew, you're gonna, you just love this intro, wrote Rudy Giuliani. Emperor of the City 19 years ago at the end of Giuliani's mayoralty. It was republished a year uh, later with Kurtzman's first-person account of his his experience with Giuliani on 9-11. And the latest news... Simon and Schuster just announced that Andrew is going has been signed on to write an authoritative biography of Rudy Giuliani, and it's going to cover the arc of Giuliani's life and career up through his current role as President Trump's personal attorney and a pivotal figure in the Ukraine scandal. Andrew Kurtzman, welcome to WBAI's Driving Forces. Thanks for having me, Jeff, and nice to hear from you too, uh, Evan. I was a big fan of Evan's book, and. Jeff, I just wanted to remind you that you and I shared a cubicle <laughs> at New York One when I was writing Emperor of the City. It w- it was almost twenty years ago, Jeff. Yeah, I know you and are you, you are dating us, and you and honestly, you look exactly the same <laughs> as as our listeners can tell right now because this is radio. So thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can attest to it. Uh, Evan, did you want to say something? Oh, I was just going to say it's a mutual admiration society. I mean, part of my job was I used to watch Road to City Hall every night, and uh, a- Andrew is is terrific. And um, actually, I thought all of his colleagues were. Um, I thought Melissa and Dominic were great. And um, yeah. I don't know. It seems Thank like you. I said so much of this seems quaint in retrospect. Uh, back for a day when <laughs> you know facts governed a campaign. So. Right. Andrew, Giuliani then versus now. I mean, you you followed his, let's say, evolution. Talk about the earliest days when he first came to power in New York City. Well, I, I mean, I listened to the interview with Ruth Messenger, and it's hard to argue with um, the point she made. I mean, he was a bully, and he was kind of ruled in that kind of authoritarian, uh, authoritarian um, manner. I think what kind of was missing um, from her description was how effective he was. I mean, that there's, you know, there's a reason that Giuliani won that race, and that's because um, so many more New Yorkers felt that their lives had improved. And it's actually, as I was listening to the um, conversation, I went and I Googled the, um, the New York Times um, story about uh, the general election debate in October 97, and um, I moderated that debate, and I asked her whether or not um, her quality of life had gotten any better over the previous four years of Giuliani's first term, and she said no. And I think that um, she was in the minority, and I think that Giuliani won his second term because a majority of New Yorkers felt that the quality of life in New York City had gotten better. And you know, you can, you know, you can argue that. You know, Giuliani is kind of, you know, there there are similarities, um, Giuliani now and then, and that he always had kind of this um, kind of moral crusade driving him. 
And I would just kind of argue that he was, you know, he, he aimed it in the right direction then, and he's aiming it in the wrong direction now. And what imp- at the time, what impressed you about his his style and uh, his mm-hmm. man and his you know management skills? Was it? I mean, at the end, obviously, you had been clearly up fr- up close watching his response to the nine eleven attacks. What right. were some of the you know positive things that you had seen? Well, I mean, I'll go back even further than nine eleven. I mean, I covered his race in ninety three against um, David Dinkins and. I had covered the Dinkins administration as a reporter uh, for the New York Daily News, and you know it was a it was a dispiriting time. Um, I mean, Dinkins was the first black mayor, and it should have been a very celebratory time. And instead, he was just kind of a captive to events. And you know, we don't have to you know, go down the list of failures, but the, you know, uh, the Crown Heights riots and the Korean boycott and and. And just, um, I guess, more important to the majority of New Yorkers was just a general degeneration of the quality of life. And, I mean, that even that term, quality of life, was not coined um, until Giuliani ran for uh, for election in 93 and suddenly, you know, realized, like, he's right. Like, that is kind of a thing, right? People were urinating in the streets and... There was, you know, crime was out of control and there was just a sense of like rampant disorder. And, you know, I was impressed from day one, frankly, when, you know, the Dinkins crew left and the Giuliani crew came in and there were there was um, first of all, the competence was impressive to me of, of the central administration crew, not necessarily the rest of the government they put together, but he had a lot of smart people surrounding him. And just to watch someone take control of the city when Dinkins was incapable of doing that. And Dinkins was kind of a captive to events when Giuliani Giuliani was running things. And I think everyone just kind of, you know, they they averted their eyes when he, you know, used his ruthless, often cruel, you know, uh, uh, tactics. I mean, he almost tortured, you know, he, he, you know, figuratively tortured the school's chancellor out of office with this campaign of harassment and um, vilification. I mean, it was it was it was deplorable. Oh, and I recall you remember I I covered the board of it then board of education at that time. I remember this clearly. That's right. That's right. I mean, it was it was despicable. But, uh, you know, he was, you know, this is kind of a bull in the china shop who was fighting the battle. He was fighting the right battle. And, you know, I think that to some extent, it, Giuliani does deserve the credit for helping to turn around, you know, so many neighborhoods in the city that allowed them to flower. So <laughs> with all that praise, let me just say that, um, you know, what you're seeing now has a lot of the, um, the, the hallmarks of his style without um, the virtue of his cause. I mean, running around Ukraine and trying to prove this dis- this discredited theory, uh, you know, it's it's um, it's disappointing to see what he's kind of um, um, directed his energies toward. I mean, so much so much of what Andrew says resonates, and I, I think part of the frustration, right, is, I mean, An- Andrew's wise to remind us of Giuliani's capacities. And I think as an observer, so many of us are frustrated less by Trump, who many of us think doesn't have those capacities and maybe even suffers from a severe mental illness and that we wish for the adult who are the adults, so-called adults who are surrounding him, see Anonymous and others, um, that they would impose some limitations on him. And, uh, you know, I would have thought that Giuliani would have been one of those people who could have restrained his ex- who could have restrained his excesses and s- understood i mean you know he's an institutionalist he came up through the department of justice he understands the rule of law he lived the rule of law i think there are some incidents in his history that suggest some willingness to be a little bit slipshod with it but he understands that and he hasn't imposed any limits. Instead, he's indulged Trump's excesses. And it's Absolutely. maddening. I, I couldn't agree more. There, I mean, there, he is, he, oh, go ahead, he's Andrew. the one person who actually could have steered Trump away from one, from some of his worst excesses. I mean, 
I don't think there's been a uh, an aide that Julie, excuse me, that Trump has had who has been more loyal to him than Rudy Giuliani. And then I'll, I'll ask and you, if I, I may, can I ask Andrew this question? Because I've, I've, you know, I've hypothesized, but you're, you're more expert than I am. So the question is, right, if, if you're being really precise, the question is, why is Giuliani indulgent and not motivated at all to impose any limitations on him? Because I think Andrew's precisely right. He's, he's his biggest enabler, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's, right. he's definitely in the, he's in the top three. And right. he hasn't gone the way of Jeff Sessions and said, this is too much for me. He's, he's still there. And so then what is his interest? Because you asked right. me a second ago, Jeff, what's his fatal flaw? What's mm-hmm. his Armarsha? What is his interest that keeps him from saying to Trump, no, no, you know what? You got to comply with the subpoena. Right. I, I wish I had the answer. I, I, I don't know what's going on in his head. I, I, you know, it, it would have been great. <laughs> It would have been terrific if he kind of put the brakes on on some of Trump's worst excesses. But, you know, I mean, I think we should kind of backtrack a little to what happened to Giuliani. I mean, if, you know, on 9-11, he became one of the most um, beloved men on the planet. And, you know, if, I mean, you remember, Jeff, mm-hmm. I mean, we were really? covering him at the time. I mean, he couldn't walk into a restaurant without getting a standing ovation. He, you know, he walked on water and he was seen at the time as above politics. Right. He was kind of this father figure for people who were terrified about what had happened. And instead of kind of um, going with it, right, and and remaining kind of above the fray um, kind of figure, he did the exact opposite. And he cast his lot with George W. Bush and Cheney and, you know, the the war and kind of drifted increasingly rightward. And then he ran for president. And he squandered even more of his credibility or, or his kind of um, nonpartisan veneer. And by the time, you know, that, that was a disaster. And by the time that race was over in 2008, he was no longer as nearly as beloved. I mean, he kind of, I mean, what's that like to be one of the most beloved men in the world and then suddenly you're not? And, you know, that was led by kind of this... Um, path through the wilderness, which went on for several years, in which he, you know, made a lot of money, but he kind of lost a lot of his public relevance. And Trump was the ticket back to, to relevance and, you know, and power. And, I, you know, I, I don't know what kind of mindset set in with Giuliani that he had to kind of indulge Trump in his worst, wildest kind of paranoid, you know, you know musings. But it was, I guess it was just part of a larger trajectory that took him from kind of nonpartisan actor to, you know, the most hyperpartisan one. Andrew, did you ever interview Trump? <laughs> yeah, I had some funny interactions with him. Uh, I mean, the, the, the stories would take up more time than you have. But <laughs> there, was, there, was one, um, there was one interview I did that Roger Stone set up for us. Oh, my God. And, Roger called me up and said, listen, Donald Trump is running for president. And this is, you know, many, many years ago when he just flirted with it. And um, we did it. We set up a very elaborate um, shoot in um, Trump Tower. It was just, you know, Trump and me and Roger Stone looking off from the side. And I started, you know, the cameras rolled and I started asking him kind of hot button questions. I said, well, how do you feel about abortion? And he said, abortion, you know, why am I here to talk about abortion? And you know, I asked, how do you feel about gay marriage? And like, gay marriage. And, you know, why are you asking these ridiculous questions? And <laughs> I asked him about his, you know, the famous affair with uh, with Marva, Marva Maples and the most probably the most widely publicized divorce in New York City history. And he literally took his microphone and yanked it off and left the set. Because he, he just was not prepared for someone to challenge him. I don't think anyone really ever challenged him. In, a, in an interview. And, um, you know, it was, it was a little glimpse at, you know, the kind of mentality the guy had had. I mean, he, you know, he was always the king. So you just announced a few weeks ago, I've just got about a minute or two left, uh, that you're going to be doing a new book coming out in uh, 2021. Can you talk a little about uh, the book? And uh, uh, my obvious question is, will you be seeking or have you gotten any you know, inroads with Rudy Giuliani to be able to speak with him for the book? Right. Well, to answer that question, um, I have 
been in contact with him, but no decisions have been made. And that, they, no decisions probably will be made for a while. He's got, you know, he's got a lot of problems on his hands right now. <laughs> Um, I think probably we have to wait until the smoke clears for him to decide whether he's going to work on me, you know, with a book that basically looks at his entire life. Um, but, you know, I wrote Emperor of the City 19 years ago, just, uh, you know, after 9-11. And, you know, that that was kind of an upward trajectory. And, you know, right afterwards, he had a far bumpier time and it led him to the brink of indictment. And I think there's you know, the, the sweep of his career where, you know, right now he's facing indictment by the same office he used to lead is just an incredible story. I mean, for a historian, it doesn't really get more interesting. And Andrew, how can people learn more about you and your work? <laughs> um, well, you know, my day job is running a uh, political consulting firm called Kurtzman Strategies, and people are always welcome to uh, to find out more um, at uh, KurtzmanStrategies.com. Thanks for asking that question. Andrew Kurtzman, thank you so much for joining us uh, on WBAI today. Thanks, Andrew. It's nice thank to you both. Appreciate it. see you. <laughs> so phone lines are now open. We've got about 10 minutes left. 212-209-2877. 212-209-2877. What do you think of Rudy Giuliani? Uh, open-ended question. Let us know how you feel. Evan and I are ready to take your calls. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I am joined in studio by Evan Mandry of John Jay College of Criminal Justice. How do you see this all playing out? What's going on in Washington, D.C. with uh, Giuliani and Trump, actually? Um, and a broad question. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the Democrats are going to impeach Trump. I guess the only question will be whether that happens before Christmas or right after the new year. Uh, the Senate will acquit Trump after an approximately two-week trial. I'll tell you what, in my various um, uh, apocalyptic scenarios right now, the one that really worries me is that I really think in 2000, the 2020 election lawlessness is on the ballot in a way that is very disturbing. So Trump is, you know, when I would talk to people in 16, I live in, um, I live in Manhasset, which is a suburb in Long Island, but it actually leans right. And they would all say, well, if Trump wins, he's going to appoint good people. And I'd be like, well, what evidence is there of that? But they believed. Now, no one could believe that. There's no plausible den deniability for voters. So if they endorse him, geez, that's like endorsing the monarchy. Wow. We have the phone lines are lighting up, so I'm going to take a call. Welcome to WBAI. You're on the air. What's your name and what's on your mind? Yes, my name's David. I wanted to go back in time to 1993 when the great Giuliani decided to forget about the First Amendment rights of sellers of books and artwork on the streets of New York City, and he ordered the police to just round up people throw their art on the ground, destroy their artwork, destroy the books, and basically arrest people because they were selling books. So, um, you know, the previous consultant, um, I don't know what where his mind is, um, because this is viciousness, and this is a complete corrupt attitude, a complete disregard for First Amendment rights. And I don't know where this character that was just on where was he? Where was he? How dare you? How dare you have this creature on with the revi revised history of, uh, of, of Giuliani? This is WBAI. Are you kidding me? I was assaulted. I was hit. I was beaten because I was selling artwork on the street ordered by a Nazi like Giuliani. Okay. Well, thank you so much for giving a call here to WBAI. And in fact, Andrew Kurtzman in his first book talked a lot about uh, uh, Giuliani's leadership skills and also acknowledged their weaknesses and strengths. I'm sure because he's a very polarizing figure. There are people who like him. There are people who do not like him. And there were a number of issues uh, where people were both praising him and also faulting him for the way he ran the city. I, I just briefly say just Andrew's legitimacy as a guest. Andrew yeah. is super smart and a very balanced journalist and... Um, but, you know, I, I don't think Andrew would have supported that behavior. He's just trying to give the full kind of range of what Giuliani did. We're going to take another call. Welcome to WBAI. What is your name and what's your question or statement? Hi, welcome. Hello? Well, yep, you're on the air. Oh, cool. Uh, 
uh, Casey from New Jersey. Hi, Casey. I just, uh, I just, I mean, Rudy Giuliani. I mean, this, I don't, nothing about him is surprising. I mean, the guy has been a, you know, kind of closet fascist forever. He just found someone. To... You still there? Oh, we were. We're you're fading in and out. Right, we heard closet fascist. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I mean, he's been a closet fascist forever. You know, he thinks the police department is there to do his bidding, whether or not the law was, uh, you know, followed by the police department. This guy is just, he is worshiping Trump because he's, Trump is everything he wishes he could be. And it's interesting. There's a political quote that I typed down uh, about, you know, Giuliani these days that Rudy wanted to be relevant again, and Trump has given him that platform. And exactly. That, so thank you, sir. So you know, he's desperate for, for, for attention. He's desperate to, to be part of, you know, this this rogue group of, of people completely trampling on, on, on our institutions and history. Thanks so much for giving WBAI a call. I've got another call. I'm trying to squeeze them all in before we have to end the show. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name and what's on your mind? Hey, my name's Gordon. I'm calling from Mount Montauk. How are you? Hi, Gordon. Thanks for calling in. Thank you. I wanted to tell you, for the listeners and everybody, to realize just how important they are. It's on these very airwaves on the distinguished Brian Lair show when the Honorable Rudolph Giuliani was running for president. Your show is broadcast around New York, across the country, around the world, to all our military bases all over the world. And I'm a New Yorker, and I wanted the people to know racial tensions were at an all-time high. His police commissioner was mobbed up. Every uh, He ruined the lives of people on Wall Street, and this is when he was running president. And then at the New Hampshire primaries, everybody stayed away from him. And I like to think it's these airways that I single-handedly defeated him for running for president. Gordon, thank you so much for giving WBAI a call. Uh, I want to thank our listeners today. I'm going to wrap up in a few moments uh, with our in-studio guest, Evan Mandery. Can you, uh, you know, we've talked a little about, you know, what we're expecting that's going to happen. Any other sentiments, anything else about Rudy Giuliani's psyche that we have not gotten to today that you wanted to point out? I thought Ruth got at something which is really, really interesting is how much he's abandoned his lawyerly instinct. Um, both um, with respect to his two clients here, right, uh, the president and himself, you know, doctor treats himself. But I mean, he he's acting as a, a provocateur, not somebody who's trying to shield somebody from criminal or political liability. And um, that transformation is dramatic. But I thought the quote you read was really on point, right? I mean, it, it's so people are so desperate to remain relevant. Um, and that they'll make compromises that I don't even think they understand. To the point that it doesn't seem as if he cares about how he's being portrayed. I mean, it actually seems to fuel him more. You know, it's so interesting is you asked Ruth and you asked Andrew kind of you gave them an invitation to promote themselves. And Ruth chose not to promote herself at all um, and just views she's just a social justice advocate and Andrew just very modestly said you can find me here and you know it's true it's very it's very sad in a way but you just have to be so relentlessly self-promoting and self-absorbed to succeed in a way that I just think it it destroys the soul so now you say that now I feel guilty because I'm going to ask you as we wrap up to talk a little oh. about yourself uh, <laughs> tell our listeners a little more about how they can find about you uh, and what you're I up tweet to. sometimes I'm at Evan Mandery <laughs> but uh, you know uh, I, I write uh, I wrote um, a piece that I'm very proud of um, uh, it appeared recently in Politico it, it was um, I went and I I've taught an ethics class for a very long time and I went and I taught it uh, at a school called Appalachian State University, Appalachian State University. And um, it's about the possibility of bridging dialogues today or whether we're doomed, destined for civil war. Um, I do think when this com uh, what I would say is so important about fora like this is 
an hour-long conversation in which you uh, is going to yield very different types of conversations than if you go onto cable news and you put two people on one side and two people on another and say, give me your bottom line and have them fight it out. So that's just going to lead to hatred. But I think conversations like this can promote, if not understanding, mutual respect. And a few months ago, as I wrap up, a few months ago, uh, we did have the authors of two books, uh, of a book on how to have these conversations, one's from the left, one's from the right. Uh, and, you know, about how many people just kind of they have blinders on. They've, they're, you know, they've got their opinions. They're not going to budge from that, but really how to open up your, your minds and how to listen to what other people are saying and understand they do have a different viewpoint. You might not move them to your side, but at least they or you will recognize that, you know, that, that you know, that they feel this way that they, they hate, just right. have a different position. It's very hard to budge attitudes, but you can budge feelings and you can make the person see the humanity of the other person. Evan Mandry, thank you so much for joining me in studio today here on WBAI. I also would like to thank uh, former Manhattan Borough President Ruth Messenger and author and uh, political consultant Andrew Kurtzman. And uh, uh, we will keep tabs on his book. Um, and uh, what's that? What's that? What? For what? Oh, no, no, we're not going to do that today. But thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I want to thank you all. By the way, this Sunday, City Watch is preempted. I will be back next Thursday um, uh, and then on hiatus until the new year. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Now stay tuned for the evening news with Paul DiRienzo. local station board is the Pacifica Foundation Board responsible for local management and operations. WBAI's local station board election is complete, electing some new local station board members. The first meeting of the new local station board will be Wednesday, December 11th at 7 p.m. at the YWCA 30 3rd Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, between Atlantic Avenue and State Street. Meetings of the local station board are open to the public, and as always, there will be an opportunity for public comment. The meeting is wheelchair accessible. Again, that's Wednesday, December 11th at 7 p.m. at the YWCA, 33rd Avenue, Brooklyn, New York. Listeners and, and the public, public are invited and welcome. Do you have to contribute to WBAI to come to the meeting? No, but why not be a BAI buddy, buddy? On Saturday, December 7th, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Young Lords Militancy. The event is titled, They Joined With Their Hearts, a conversation with the cadre of the New York Young Lords. Speakers include Gloria Rodriguez, Minerva Soya, Carlos Aponte, Gilbert Sabu Colon, Jose Pai Diaz, and Jose Chacha Jimenez. Moderated by the Reverend of the First Spanish United Methodist Church, Reverend Dorlimar Lebron Malave. Join us this Saturday, December 7th, 2019, from 4 to 6.30 at the First Spanish United Methodist Church, a.k.a. the People's Church, 163 East 111th Street, East Harlem. See you there. Hello, I'm David Rothenberg, and I'm the oldest person of any room I enter, unless Malachi McCord is already plopped down in the room. So the two of us are getting together to have a conversation. And if you want to eavesdrop on it, and we'll be departing some wisdom, it'll cost you $25. But all the money's going to this cockamamie station, WBAI, which you might have heard could use a dollar or two. Conversation with Malachi and David will be at the Commons, the performance space below WBAI's Crystal Studios at 388 Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. The gathering will be on Sunday, December 8th at 2 o'clock. For ticket reservations, email me at dprfortune at hotmail.com. Leave your phone number and I'll call you back. So once again, it's Sunday, December 8th at 2 o'clock, 388 Atlantic Avenue, and you can email me at dprfortune at hotmail.com. 
My name is Harvey Epstein. I represent the 74th Assembly District, but I'm here as a listener who cares deeply about BAI. If we talk about social justice movements in New York, you can't have the conversation without BAI. Right BAI on. has been a part of every fabric, of every movement. What are we talking about? Police reform, criminal justice work, housing movement. Everyone relies on BAI as a source of information, a source of opportunity, a source to move the movement forward. Please call 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org. Go to the website, give2wbai.org, and subscribe. Become a listener sponsor. Become a buddy, a WBAI buddy, a sustaining member for 10 or $20 a month or more. Or if you are a donor who has given us $100. Think about giving us $200. Think about giving WBAI $500, whatever you can afford, in the name of your favorite program here over listener-sponsored, locally grown, locally controlled WBAI New York. And thank you so much.